Thank you for joining the Startup Guide to Growth. My name is Rico Malazzi, and I'm Senior Director of Go-To-Market Ops at Sapphire Ventures. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Steve Fitz, an incredible sales executive with over 25 years of experience. And he formerly held sales leadership roles at EMC, Avaya, and MapR Technologies. Today, Steve is CRO of Sumo Logic, where he's led that go-to-market organization since 2016, and last year had the pleasure of taking the company public. On this episode, we discuss how Steve and his team does pipeline prosecution, the balance he has set between sales and marketing, what being customer-centric truly means for a SaaS company, and what he looks for in a great sales candidate. I hope you find this episode as interesting and as valuable as I did. Well, Steve, thanks for joining us. Great. Good to see you again. Yeah, you as well. And really excited to have this conversation with you today. I think there's tons of learnings that we can explore. And I want to first kind of set the stage by giving us a little bit about your background. What are the sales roles you've had prior to being CRO of Sumo Logic? And I think you even have some international experience as well. Yeah, sure. I I started my sales journey quite early. I I was actually a uh, first co-op student for this company called EMC. And that went into a full-time role where I got exposed to early sub-200 employee environment and culture, people, sales, DNA. And from there, you graduated and you went to, uh, I got, you know, you sat down with the M and EMC, which is Roger Marino, and he picked the city you go to. I was fortunate enough to go to New York City. And I remember Roger telling me, if you can sell in New York City, you can sell anywhere. And, you know, I spent a long time at EMC in my career and had an opportunity later, if we go through 9-11, I was running a pretty big business for EMC in, uh, in New York Metro and had an opportunity for my boss at the time to do something different. And we chose to move to Asia to just do something outside of your comfort zone. And we did that for about four and a half years and probably learned there more in four and a half years than I did my prior 20. And then we repatriated back to the West Coast and stayed with EMC for a while and then did some um, things outside, both small and larger. I did a private equity thing at a company called Avaya and then got into the big data world with one of the Hadoop players. And then most recently, obviously, uh, joined Sumo now about four and a half years ago. Great. What are the, some of the experience that you think helped define your success in sales? It's people. It's a people business. Sales is not a forgiving environment. You have to have grit. You have to have a positive attitude. In sales, probably more than a lot of other professions, the highs are high, the lows are low, and you got to feed off other people. And whether that's a customer engagement or an employee engagement, there's an outcome. I think the most important things I love is like the seeing people be successful. I mean, I can see and seeing sales reps get their first deal, get the first logo, get a large win is so personally rewarding to me in terms of that and where it's going to take them, maybe not in the next quarter, but in their career and how that helps them along that journey. Yeah. It's such a confidence booster, I would imagine. I think what, one of the things I, I want to dive into is kind of how you run your, your sales team. And I've heard in previous readings, you call it process pipeline prosecution. I, I actually haven't personally heard that before, but why do you call it that? And how much rigor do you put around each stage of your pipeline review? Yeah, the prosecution thing gets a lot of comments because it, but, but if you look at one of the definitions of prosecution, it's a continuation of an action, you know, with a view to, to its completion. So if you look about prosecution, pipe's good, but some pipe's not good. Some pipe is good. So you want to get completion on that, whether it's a closed wand good side or, hey, not an opportunity, not a good fit, might be a a loss in that regard. So for us, it's the rigor looking at pipe 
but moving pipe through the different stages across that spectrum as it relates to first engaging with a customer that might do a Sumo Logic free download on our website that actually grows into a you know multi-million dollar ARR customer. And if you look across that journey, you have to look at the different stages and understand what stages, why the conversion works across those stages and always, always you know, refine your process there. And we spend a lot on probably stage two to stage four for us. And that's where it gets to a, you know, engagement, a, uh, a POC, POV type of environment. And those are the, the important parts of us is that, you know, it's the sales leadership, but also the marketing aspect of how do you nurture a customer as well across that spectrum? Because we're not trying to touch one person, we're touching many across that customer environment. Yeah, I like how you put that. It almost puts a kind of a mindset that that this is going to be continuously iterated on, right? And evaluated and modified kind of based on the results you're seeing. So when you look at that, the top of the funnel, how do you have that responsibility broken down between sales and marketing? Yeah, so we spent a lot of time on this from sales, marketing, sales operations, sales strategy on that side today. And we've actually done this for the last probably three years now is the expectation is 50% comes from the marketing, which we call the demand gen you know, side of the house. That's both inbound, outbound, event-based marketing. And then 50% comes from the rep itself. And that's the rep on outbound, but also the, the partner environment and the ecosystem that creates. And on a macro level, we've achieved that you know, for the last probably 12 plus quarters in terms of you know, the 50-50. Now, if you get down into the details, not every rep's going to get inbound downloads, website and such. So you have to work and refine that. And back to your point, Rico, is like you have to constantly iterate what works and then find out what doesn't work. I mean, the pandemic's a good example. We stopped doing shows, right? Yeah, we got 30, 40% of our demand gen lead pipe from shows. And now you're doing that in a virtual world. And candidly, the quality of the pipe now, I would say, is better than it was from the show side. Because if you're at a show, you're picking up a name and it's conversation. Now it's more contextual. Well, you, you want to grab the Sumo Logic little toy, right? If you're at the show. Well, that's what, so is that a qualified lead, right? <laughs> Just because I picked the, um, you know, the, the little trinket or tchotchke up and rarely it is. Therefore, it shows more of awareness. I think if you look at the events that you're doing now, the, the, the virtual world, it's much more contextual and it, it allows for a bit more of the nurturing aspect of what matters to the uh, person on the other end of the, uh, in this case, the video. Have you seen that 50-50 ratio between marketing sales change as a result of it or just looking for different ways to augment from the demand gen side and you've been able to maintain that ratio? No, we, we've been able to maintain it. We've been very conscious on digital investment since the pandemic. So actively moving dollars from shows to more digital campaigns and, and nurtures in that regard. I think that what we've seen in the last 12 months is the, you know, the importance of digital's front and center in terms of the way that you find people, interact with people, nurture people across that spectrum. What's the the cadence you have from a leadership perspective between sales and marketing? What type of dialogue do you keep? And, and what are the usual objectives of those conversations? Healthy candor, a lot of inspection in terms of our process. We try not to take anecdotal feedback. We, we get into data that drives better decisions, better ideas, better outputs. We've implemented things, outreach campaigns that we put in front of our SDRs and our sellers to, how do I reach a prospect? I mean, I think HubSpot would tell you it would take 17 times to even reach somebody. So 
You know, you can't do something one, two or three times and expect a response on the other side. And you have to make your messaging a lot more contextual today in terms of finding that problem that they have, or hopefully uncovering there is a problem because maybe there isn't, and therefore I shouldn't be there today. I need to put you on the back burner and put that on hold for now. But the, you know, back to your question, it's like we have weekly standups, sales and marketing, and we do deeper dives. You know, I go that through the, the example we talked about earlier with pipeline prosecution, and that's part of our rigor of trying to understand what works and what doesn't work. And if it's not working, then we figure out the elements of, hey, let's try these three things to enhance it so we get better conversion rates across that, you know, spectrum. That's great. One of the things I consistently hear from CROs is, is a challenge with talent. I mean, we are in a very tough talent market, very competitive. So can you tell us how you evaluate great talent? Because oftentimes it's quite expensive to make the wrong hire. So what do you look for in a candidate and strategies around recruiting? Sure. We spend a lot of time on us, even at the board level, because if you look at it, I, I think the you know, enterprise seller cost of a bad hire there is like 1.5 million, right? You know, you're paying for your recruiting time, your interviewing time and everything up front. For me, we do an assessment for candidates up front. And that assessment actually says, do they fit into this culture, this, this environment? Are they going to thrive here? And there's signals that say this person is high here and maybe a little bit questionable there. So it allows the, you know, the hiring manager in this, this case to probe a little deeper in terms of where that synergy sits with our fitting into our culture are they going to thrive here? We're very much a collaborative culture, a learning culture. We expect that from our individuals. We're not looking for mercenaries in that regard. Now, specifically as it relates to candidates, I look for a couple things. Attitude, effort, intellectual curiosity, grit. Have they been knocked down and been able to get back up and show that across their career and their experience in their careers? And then do they tap into other people for help? Because I don't want to have hire somebody that just taps into their manager. You want, you want to build it like I can go to somebody in marketing, I can go to somebody in engineering, and they can network across that spectrum, not, not only internally, but externally as well. Breaking then, down silos. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the, you know, the partner side of it is so important as well. And this, that ecosystem that you create is such a big bow wave of, I think, energy as well as exposure for you. You have to look at ways to leverage that as well. So those are the things we, we look at. We're constantly iterating on how we find people that fit into the culture and then choose to be here, but love being here as well. And you know, part of that is being in, personally for me, being in the office, which hasn't been a benefit. And we're always looking at ways to try to recreate that energy culture in a virtual world as well. Any, uh, what are some of those ways that you try to create that energy? Making it small groups, making yeah. it one-on-one. I think, candidly, Rico, it's taking stuff off video and putting it one-to-one -one phone conversation. I feel like in this video world, we've lost the value of just a one-on-one -on -one conversations in some regards. Right. And then checking into them because there's a lot of downtime that we all have personally during the pandemic. And that's some ways that's not healthy because you're too much thinking time, right? So are you all right? right? Are you all right at home? I mean, we have employees that are sitting at home in their apartment in San Francisco that little isolated. We have employees that are sitting at home with their younger kids trying to homeschool them. Yeah. That's not an easy environment for anybody. Yeah. And you have to be empathetic and conscious of that and supportive of it. And we are, but I, I can't live in their world. I have to be able to be supportive of that environment and show them the positive. 
Yeah. I think you bring up a good point. The mind left in solidarity can go in some odd places. Yeah. I mean, it's a tougher thing. I've been on this bandwagon recently, believe it or not, of meditation. Yeah. And the benefit of that just a couple of times a day, just to center yourself. Because it, I mean, what we've been in the last nine months, it's like, you know, there's no difference from a Wednesday to a Sunday. Yeah. My outfit doesn't change either. Uh, (laughs) One thing you mentioned, and and I kind of love your perspective on this, is being very customer centric. And I think it's spoken a lot in the industry. But to you, what does customer centricity mean? And and how do you project that when you're out in the field talking to customers? I think in the SaaS world, especially, Rico, that customer experience is the end all winning environment for any platform or solution. And you, you sell a solution, but if you don't enable, engage, educate, and create value across that spectrum, then that renewal is not going to happen. I can vote you off the island in a year from now. If you do that right of correlating value for the platform or solution we're selling to the customer on the other end, and I'm solving your business problem and helping you out, and I'm providing you better unit economics by licensing or, you know, in our case, you know, tiering, I can earn my right to get there. But I think you're we're all naive to think that that exists. It doesn't exist unless you do it. And to me, customer experience is somebody on the other side of the table that understands that and values it and agrees with it. And we do a lot of things that really correlate value and match value and test value in that regard. And we got triggers in our system that say, hey, that customer is a red in this regard that doesn't make sense. You got to unpack it and try and see how we course correct that. The things that we can't change in a customer environment is somebody, you know, leadership changes. And then somebody comes in from another company and they, they have another purview or way of doing things. What you can change is the value you deliver with the platform that, that you uh, entered the, uh, the business with in, this, in that respect. I believe customer experience is everything in SaaS. And if you, you know, it's about things like avail- platform availability. And making sure that customers understand your platform availability versus others in the market. And we kind of take that for granted sometimes and we don't translate that value to the customer on the other side. And I think one of the things you built at Sumo Logic to help be customer centric is this business value office. Can you explain what that team does and how it engages with the com- the customer? Sure. We, we looked at, this is a couple of years back now, we, we looked at this from a couple of different successful SaaS companies. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, in SaaS, you're up for re-election. So you have to have a value creation early in the cycle in a pre-sales environment and certainly post-sales. You can't go back to a customer nine months after you sold them and say, hey, you know, you're ready to renew. You have to have those conversations along that way. And in SaaS, it's, I don't know what the number is, 250, 500K. It gets to another level of spend that you're, you know, you get C-level that then challenges that spend. And you have to be able to correlate the value you're delivering, why it matters, why your platform matters. I and mean, we coexist with a lot of our competitors and, and many of our customers today. And we have to be able to articulate why Sumo versus going, you know, what could be like the the legacy normal course in that regard. And for us, it's, it's a pretty important part of our, uh, our sales methodology because we require a, what we call the sales intelligence portal as part of every opportunity. And our conversion rate for reps that do that is two and a half times that of a normal rep. So it's kind of like, you know, you go back to your sales reps that aren't doing it. It's like, is there a reason why you're not doing it? 
I get two and a half X better conversion rate if I do this. It helps us qualify in, qualify out, and really catches us with you know blind spots, which exists in every company. Can you describe a little bit about the sales intelligence portal? What's it help do with the, the sales rep and the customer? It, it, it captures the our value selling methodology. It's one place. It's the value office in that regard because it's a you know what we call a business value assessment. And then we have a BVA light, which you can do on a, a spreadsheet as a customer. I can give you the tools to do that. You can do it yourself. We have a BVA heavy, which we actually have then a conversation, a set of questions and an interview with the customer in that regard. And then all that data sits in a repository that I can tap into, other execs at CrossSumo can tap into to understand the customer's journey in that regard, understand their experience, understand the value, and then pick those value statements out and maybe use those across that customer spectrum in terms of, if I'm on the phone with you and you're the CIO of XYZ company, I can leverage that and that data to have an intelligent conversation about what we're doing for you and test out why it matters. Right. Is it up to the sales rep to decide whether they use the BVA light or the BVA heavy based on the customer opportunity? How does that work? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of that. I mean, we try and do all of them heavy, but you're never going to get the time from the customer that way. And then the part of the thing is like, we give this back to the customer. It's like, we're not doing it. We're actually giving it back to you. So it's very transparent in that regard. And I think that's helpful because we're, and we, we partner with an outside firm on that just for make it a little bit more independent from that perspective, because it's not all sumo. You know, there's an independent factor of kind of help validating that from a value standpoint. That's great. I think one of the things Sumo did, and, and we see this with a lot of startups, is is kind of, you know, create a better technology, but it, it has to kind of remove uh, an established vendor that's already in the market. So what were some of the strategies that worked to compete against some of those established vendors in the market coming in as a new player to have those CIOs and technology leaders take the risk with your solution? What resonated? I had a lot of different things there. Is it, and, and I think you're, you know, as you go upstream into the enterprise, you got to be cognizant, you know, you find the pain, right? Whether my spend's too high with, you know, this competitor, they want an alternative. That alternative might be because I'm spending too much money with them. And I don't think I'm getting the value for it, back to the value equation. Or, hey, I'm moving to the public cloud and I need a different architecture to be able to do this. That for us is a forcing function. I mean, we're a multi-tenant platform that sits in the public cloud and arguably can do things at you know at scale that most cannot. And that's our key differentiator, but does that matter to you? It might matter to you for your digital assets, your customer facing assets today. And therefore we can coexist with um, in your environment. So we kind of, I would say, you know, if you look at the 800 pound gorillas that you compete against in the marketplace, we typically don't go in the front door, right? The front door is kind of a rip and replace of, you know, a competitor. The side door is like, hey, I got a, a new digital banking app that I'm spinning up and I want to be able to um, do this, but I need to do it real quick, real fast. And I need to scale it because it's going to, I'm going to bring in 5,000 customers in month one and I'm going to go to 50 in month three, right? That's where we shine. And then we work our way into the other side of the house because they see the benefits of it, the ease of use and everything else. So I think when you're competing with an established vendor, they have the relationships, they have the skill, the expertise, they have the know-how inside the enterprise. And you have to, you find a way in that solves a problem that they're not being, that's not being solved today. That's not always evident, but I would say in this world of public cloud transformation and digital transformation, kind of overused words, but it is happening. It's our market and our opportunity. I think one of the things with Sumo is, is you do have that kind of 
downloaded bottoms up approach as well. And, and obviously you've built out a very robust enterprise sales motion. So how do you blend the two? You know, what are the demarcation lines? How do you manage those two kind of motions? Because what we see is as, as companies scale, whether they started bottoms up, eventually they have both and they have to blend them at some point. So how do you blend those motions? Yeah. We, and we've spent a lot of time on that in the last probably six to 12 months on the, um, we call it Sumologic Free. So I can download, we need to nurture there and we're nurturing that a little bit different now than we were in the past because we want to, we want to handhold those customers. We, you know, I was reviewing a customer recently that, you know, they were a downloaded customer from 2017 that started off with a, you know, a thousand dollar download that's 500 KARR today. So if you find that, I'm not saying every customer does that, but it's a great story of the benefit of nurture and taking them across that journey. Now we didn't go to 1,000 to 500,000 overnight. We did it over time. We segment what we call commercial mid-market on employees, 1,000 and below, and then 1,000 above is our enterprise. You know, we sub-segment enterprise as well. And it's a different touch across many of those. You find in you know, your mid-market customers, you know, the security observability decision in our experience is, is more of a consolidated decision. And the enterprise is quite different. It's siloed. But I think along that journey, it's like different touch points, making sure from our own side that we're not just touching one part or one function, but making it more broad yeah. and helping the customer along that. Because a lot of customers are getting bombarded with, hey, I can solve everything for you. And you know, not everybody can. And I'm not saying Sumo can either, but you have to educate the customer along that spectrum as well. Yeah. I think one of the beautiful things about you know your tool, it creates optionality because you have multiple personas that could potentially be interested in the technology. But I, I would imagine that also might cause some confusion for the sales rep on where should I focus my attention? What are the signals that you help to guide the sales rep on what persona they should be targeting or sequencing? Well, we used some modern tech to help them out on that. We used some ones that to help help look under the covers of a prospect and what are they looking for in the, in the environment today? Are they, you know, they're searching for something on compliance. They want to put it, you know, spin up something on SOC. They, they, they need an observability, um, you know, solution. They're looking at a public cloud architecture. And therefore, it, it helps you find the, uh, what I would consider the problem or the thing they're looking for. And then the personas underneath that are quite different. And the security side, it's obviously the CISO stack in that regard. It might be the SOC team or the compliance team underneath it. And then across the observability side, it's quite different. It's an SRE, it's a DevOps practitioner. It might be somebody that's taking on cloud operations. And you have to know that where to choose, you know, where you're going to spend your time across that and where the customer is at on that spectrum, because not every, not all that's uh, evident in terms of what challenges I have today with, I might have platforms that are sufficient for what I'm doing, how do we find our way in there to solve that problem today and then kind of broaden our exposure? That's great. I want to also talk about knowing what you know today. I mean, you came into Sumo at an interesting time and really scaled that organization from a, a go-to-market side. If you were going to start at Sumo again, day one, put yourself back in that shoes, those shoes, what advice would you give yourself? It's always a good question. I, I think you move faster. Really? Move faster on people, move faster on initiatives. I think the people side of it, we've built that out over the last 16, 18 quarters since I've been here, but you always move faster on talent in that regard. So I, I think that's party, certainly part of it. I think you know the whole digital nurture piece that we talked about 
I would have taken on earlier. And candidly, I'd go back to the customer experience world. I, I probably would have invested in that earlier as well. That wasn't necessarily evident coming in the door and the importance of that from a you know renewal retention experience measure from a customer standpoint as it is today. And that's very clear to me, but it, it wasn't evident then what we needed to do. Now that's, that's great. And if you look forward, how do you see maybe technology sales changing in the future? If, you know, if at all, but like, if you look ahead, where do you see those trends going? More modern prospecting tools to make the conversations more contextual, make the outreaches much more contextual, helping people find each other along that spectrum versus me kind of just cold calling you randomly. I can scrape the web today and know who's in the market for my solutions, but then it's the message to you to bring you to the table and at least for me to share how I could potentially solve that solution and maybe find out if there is a vision match there along that spectrum. So I, I think it's modern prospecting in many regards is something that you know you have to adapt and you've got to learn. And then, gosh, the tech that the new seller has to learn today, I think the modern seller not, needs to be a lot more technical. I started my career and I, wasn't, I didn't come from an engineering technical background. I think today you have to constantly learn and adapt new tech. You look at like Kubernetes, Kubernetes is mainstream today. You look back three years ago, I don't think Kubernetes was a word people really would commonly use, understand, right? as an example. And that, those are the things you really got to jump on the new stuff, understand it. And how do I connect with a person on the other side? I got to talk his language right. or their language and, and understand that. That's and great. that puts a lot on the, you know, puts a lot on the seller because you've got to learn a lot more and you got to be a lot more agile. You got to be very much a learning initiative and mindset in terms of that. Yeah. I got characteristic to look for in the hire, right? Innate curiosity, a willingness to learn. I like to end these podcasts by asking one quirky question. So I've heard from other CEOs in the portfolio that you are a pretty prolific CrossFit athlete. So I wanted to ask you on the days that you do cheat, what is your favorite cheat meal? Well, I, I mean, CrossFit, let me, let me take the CrossFit yeah. thing for a second. I've, I've been doing CrossFit for nine years and I kind of taken a pause on it because of anybody that's done CrossFit for, I've done thousands of wads and love it because of the camaraderie that it brings to a competitive environment. So yeah. wads aren't easy. They're tough. You do them together and all you do is you finish. That's the beauty of it. And doing that at 5.30 AM, what, what is it? Me versus the pillow? That's the challenge you have. And I, yeah, I love it for that reason. I don't love it because my back has many um, war stories about those throwing weights around and doing burpees and everything else. <laughs> but as it comes to desserts, I'm not a big dessert person. But if you look at ice cream flavors, I'd probably have to say chocolate. Might sound a little bland, but I'd go with chocolate. Uh, tried and true, right? You go with uh, <laughs> what you know is good. No, that, that, that's great. And I think there's something in that as well, right? Because you, you start your day by already creating a win in your environment. Like you said, you ah, the mindset, the right? The yeah. mindset's the most important thing of any, uh, any athlete, any successful person. And, you know, you start your day on a positive mindset and positive experience, then it sets up the, the entire day. Days that I work out, I know are days better than when I don't. Yeah. No, that's, 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 and I don't eat ice cream first thing in the morning. <laughs> uh, it's a reward. No, Steve, I, I want to thank you for your time. This has been a great discussion. If people want to get in touch with you, I'm sure they can find you on LinkedIn, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Steve, and, and look forward to continuing to kind of watch the journey there at Sumo and the business you're building. Appreciate Sapphire's help along that journey too. You guys have been incredible for us. 
Thank you.